Welcome back to Pop Psych 101. I am licensed therapist Ryan Engelstad, and I am thrilled to have with me today uh, a gentleman who I reached out to online when he said he wanted to come on podcasts, and I, I saw his YouTube video in which he was uh, expressing and sharing his story, um, and I said, this is a guy I got to talk to. So I want to introduce Sean Pryor. Sean, thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. So um, it seems like you kind of have a message. Well, you have a couple different messages that you are very passionate about, which I, I have a great appreciation for. Um, I watched your YouTube video um, specifically on anti-smoking and your story there, and maybe we'll get into that today as well. Um, but I, I really appreciate you coming on. We talked about some different ideas about what we wanted to talk about. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, just kind of give me a, a brief introduction. What, what made you um, kind of want to do what you're doing today? Uh, well, you know, I, um, I, I, I have a deep appreciation, I guess, for, uh, for mental health, because as a, uh, as a first responder, um, you know, you, um, as I like to say to people, there's no handbook, uh, nobody, like, I wish they told me, I wish there was someone that said to me, you're going to see some things, you're going to smell some things, and you're going to hear some things that are going to leave you going, what just happened? Yep. Um, and because of that, you find yourself in a lot of situations where, um, you, probably could use to talk to someone, but the average person does not understand uh, what you need to say. And mm. so uh, I found the passion for wanting to be an advocate, to be uh, to be a person uh, who does first responder first aid, as we call it, basically being there as somebody who talks to our first responders uh, when they're in crisis, when they've seen yeah. some things that they just cannot process. Because sometimes, again, you see, hear, and smell things that you can't process. And um, the average public at large is just not the place to vent that out. So. Mm. Fantastic. So, so you are also a firefighter yourself yes. of how long? Yes. Uh, since 2017 officially is when I first got in a firefight and I was an older jet. I picked <laughs> it up and uh, decided to hop in. So fantastic. So that's why, um, you know, due to your dual interest, I said, you know, this is a topic that's really fascinating to me because it's something that I know very little about that being firefighting, right. but I know a lot about the mental health side of it, that being, trauma basically right. right and and everything that comes with that so um we we tossed around a couple of different ideas and we landed on a documentary called wildland so wildland is a documentary directed and produced by alex jablonski and 2018 produced by pbs and it is now available i watched it on imdb uh through my amazon fire stick i don't actually know if it's available anywhere else but i'm sure you could find it um stuff on youtube and things like that but so that is Wildlands. That's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to get into uh, what it's like to be a firefighter, um, mental health complications of being a first responder in general, and what Sean is doing now in terms of being a mental health first aid provider. And, you know, what we can take away from how firefighters cope or maybe what they can do differently to cope better, as obviously you're doing some work in that area as well. So right after the break, we will get into Wildland. Wildland. Filmed during two recent wildfire seasons, Wildland is a sweeping yet deeply personal account of a firefighting crew as they struggle with fear, loyalty, dreams, and demons. This is the story of ordinary people with nothing left to lose as they trudge through an unforgiving test of mind, body, and spirit, as it says on pps.org. So I, I couldn't write a better synopsis than that. So Wildland, a fascinating uh, portrayal of what it's like to be a firefighter. You know, I think 
someone hears firefighter and you kind of picture, you know, your local firefighter house. Like I have one around the corner in a, in a small suburban town. Right. And you picture, you know, the guys on the trucks going to the, the house fire or, you know, I think the weird association I have is like, oh, and they're just around town doing, you know, little things that might need to be done. Oh, is this stuck in a tree? Is this jaws of life from a car? You see them on the side of the road sometimes. But forest firefighting, which is what this documentary really focuses on, is something that unless you see a random movie or see like viral social media clips of how crazy forest fires can be, is something that I feel like no one really knows what that lifestyle looks like. Fully agree with that. I think that there is uh, there's a huge split there that, yeah, I, I don't think a lot of people understand. Um, being a wildland firefighter, as we like to call it, yeah. here, is a whole nother game. Um, you know, I can say, while I've never done it in the mountains, uh, my sure. experience wildland firefighting was on the Ray of Fire, famous fire here in Oklahoma. Oh, wow. Okay. We went out on task force. We were gone for several, for days, yep. you know, we're sleeping outside. We're doing the same thing. And uh, it is a whole different animal, um, especially for somebody like me who is trained <laughs> while I'm trained in both primarily, yeah. you know, when you're used to doing, Hey, the cats in the tree, sure. Crack, house fire. Yeah. It's a whole different animal when you right. go out into the wild. Yeah. So we're introduced to this group of guys and, you know, you're really meeting these guys as they are joining the team. And it's a, a small town in uh, Western Oregon. Um, so a lot of, a lot surrounded by forest and you're, you're meeting these guys and you kind of get a sense of why each of them is, is wanting to fight fire, right? Some of them are just looking for work. Some of them are coming out of a complicated legal situation and they just, again, need stability. Um, for some of them, it, it sort of feels like something that's in the family. Um, and it's a really interesting combination of, of all men and one woman um, on the firefighting team as well. Um, but it's just... It's really interesting because you know these guys are going into a difficult situation, but they're coming out of difficult situations. So I'm wondering, you know, as you're watching this sort of introduction to these guys, does, does this, you know, do these guys feel familiar to you? This sort of like ragtag bunch of, of guys who are coming together, you know, some of them, they, they know this is what they want to do. Some of them, it's just, I just need this is, this is income or this is stability or this is something for my probation officer to see I have a job, whatever it is. I can say every firehouse is a ragtag bunch. It is a bunch <laughs> yeah. of guys that are loosely tossed together. There's the, yeah. high man, the guy that falls in love once a week. All of those different personalities are present and relevant in a firehouse. Now, I will say that there is some stark differences in the sense that when you are a local firefighter, you know, mm. when you're in the town, et cetera, there are more stringent um, background things that would probably sure. not allow several of those guys to be firefighters gotcha. in that sense. However, it's easier to be a lot looser when the thought is, well, he can't steal from the trees. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> if, they, if they're out in the middle of the woods, there's right. only so much damage they can do. Sure. Exactly. <laughs> so you get, you get a big difference there. And that, of course, brings in a whole day. It brings in a melting pot of personalities. Um, you know, we're apt to see the guys who I saw a fire truck or my house caught on fire when I was 10. And I knew that's what I wanted to do versus mm, the guy. Yeah. I know I can't go to Cal Fire, but I fought fire in prison. So I'm going to go someplace else. Here I am in Oregon. Hook me up. Yeah, yeah. 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 And and we really see, you know, I think as we're introduced to them, we kind of 
are worried, like, is this going to go poorly? You know, all these guys coming from different backgrounds, different motivations, but to their credit, and I think this is a credit to the guys who run the, the operation, right? You see these guys have a lot of experience. They, you know, talk about how quickly they can, you know, get the hoses all set up and up the mountain, all these things. And, and they run a tight ship, which I was, uh, I was incredibly impressed by. And I think that's got to be something that's necessary for a fire department or, or any really group of people to run effectively. I'm sure that's something you've experienced as well. I would say, I think to any degree, watching those guys, to any degree, I think one of the first things I've said, and I've been a training officer for the last year mm. at our department, this, this job wants to kill you. I mean, that's what it mm. wants. Being a firefighter wants to kill you. Yeah. So to go and do a job that you know desires to kill you means you have to do it as fast and as efficiently as possible with the most faith in all of the guys around you mm. or you're definitely going to die. It's not even a question of, oh, you might know you will die. So I love the fact that they hustle them. Uh, and I loved seeing the guys that they had that sense of urgency. I think mm -hmm. they kind of, hell, I don't care who you are. I think you get it. You might die. <laughs> Usually that's enough motivation right there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you know, it's 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 also kind of scary because you see them, they kind of gradually get more and more of a sense of the scope of what they're dealing with. You know, they're in class, they're doing training, and then they're finally sort of accepted onto the team, right? So um, once that happens, you see some of them kind of get excited, like, oh, now the good stuff happens, right? Now we kind of get gotta get to work. But that takes a you take a while, you know. I would say more than half the movie is them doing the I don't know if we would say the dirty work, right? Like the hard um, forest clearing type of work, which for me, you know, not having a lot of experience or familiarity with this is, is kind of shocked by it. It's like, oh, wow. So the majority of the work is not fighting fire. It's no. sort of fire prevention. It's fire controlling. It's, 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 uh, it's forest management, right? If I can say, um, even in a city, uh, sure. If you have a fire break out of the house and your grass catches on fire, you're going to be doing what we call mop up. And I think they said mop up too yeah. for some time just to yep. make sure that grass, because you'd be surprised how quick grass can reignite just from some okay. good wind within 20 minutes and you're back at it again for another four hours. So it, 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 it's, I would say it's part of paying your dues and they're probies. Mm. When you first come in, you are a probie, and I'm not going to trust you with my life. And those guys are not going to believe that they're going to be able to trust each other because they don't know anything about them. So I thought it was a great depiction of the feeling out process and showing how, honestly, how, how you get vetted, you know, mm. because you get to test each other's metal out there. Yep. And with that mundane work, sometimes you have the guys who, you know, it's too hot, you're too tired. You have the guys who look like they're just bored, yeah. the guy that just wants a sandwich, you know, and you figure out, you know, who's the ones that's like, hey, I'm just going to keep going with this fire rate. Yep. I'm just going to keep going. You know, I'm going to carry my tools the correct way right. and do my job. And that's, mm -hmm. I think, I will say in real life, not just in that documentary, that is exactly how you get weeded out. It was mm. by, by your, your capacity to do the, the grind work, yes. right? Not yes. the necessarily the emergent work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we start to get introduced to some of the, the mental health aspects of the job, right? Whether it's the monotony, dealing with the boredom, dealing with the the hard physical work. I think that was one of the things that I that I noticed in these initial stages was, you know, I think you can imagine how hard it is physically to do some of this work, but then you see the guys adapting to some of these first days and just collapsing 
Um, you know, I think he says, okay, we just did two hours. The average shift is five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Some are twelve, some are twenty-four, and then it's like, oh, this is what I signed up for. Yeah, it's it's and it's 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 a shock. I will say, I had been a firefighter for a couple of years when I went to the Ray of Fire. And I felt like, you know what? I don't know it all, but I know enough. I'm like, you know, sure. I'm not Kobe anymore. Everything's fine. I was ill-prepared um, mm. for the, t- the amount of time that you spend marching around in those boots, yep. just fire rake, fire rake. Um, and I know this is a lot to hear, but you see strange things. There's animals mm. that are out there. Yep. Animals, uh, and I know this was said in another movie, um, animals will literally catch on fire and literally run out of the forest mm. past you. And, yes, and, and probably contributing to more fire they happening. Do. Oh yeah. my gosh, they do. Yeah. You literally have to try to catch them before yep. they make it worse. But it honestly, it's a true statement. I've heard that in another movie and it couldn't be more true. There are animals that unfortunately when they, when they're, I, I almost don't even want to say, but it's, it's, it's not pretty. Um, they, yeah. they rupture, if you will. Yeah. They'll catch on fire because they can't move as fast. They'll rupture. You see, smell, and hear things again on these kinds of fires that you got to be so hard on those guys just because, you know, I, they don't expect it. And when you see it, it really tests your mettle. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we have these guys in the situation where they're just do, kind of doing this hard physical labor, monotonous work. Um, and they're sort of itching to get into it, right. To do what they probably conceive of as the real work. And I have to imagine that that's, that's a a common experience as well. Wanting to get into it, wanting to really, I don't know, be on the front lines is a, is a phrase that they use eventually, right? Like, okay, here, you, you were here, you wanted this, right. Um, so, you know, and you, you talked about the training process. I mean, you and I talked about this sort of before we, we, we hopped on today, and that's this idea that, you know, as a therapist, if I had to create a job for uh, that would most likely contribute to trauma, it would be, okay, you're going to do fairly, um, I won't say boring, but like uh, monotonous, repetitive, uneventful work for a long period of time. And I think they even sort of described this at one point. Um, there's like a famous quote, and I, I probably should have written it down. Maybe we'll, we'll jump back in later. But basically, it's it's all of this monotonous work followed by, you know, deathly fear for your life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and you don't know when it's going to happen. You're going to get a call. You're going to hear the bell. And, and that's the situation that you're going to be going into. Pretty much. Um, and that's, that's kind of the thing is you, you spend so much time. I mean, again, for your guys that are just your standard city firefighters, you're training or you're sitting there eating or you're hanging out yeah. and you are, you're waiting, you know, you are, you spend so much time waiting. And then when it comes, it's that big, that huge rush. I will Adrenaline, say sure. is, a lot of, is a lot of times, even for your city firefighters, most of your calls are medical calls. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I tripped, I fell, I hurt my wrist. It's usually simple stuff. You're, yeah. uh, you're full of rest. Maybe once every two weeks, you get a fully involved structure fire. You know, you go and you physically fight fire, yep. good fire. Mm-hmm. But that's a once a week, once every two week thing. Most of the time is spent either much smaller calls, poor old women, stuff like that. And of course, I just like to say, I, I, I don't say that, that they are lesser calls than a fire at all. No, no, of course not. And, and, and those are life-saving calls as well exactly, in many cases. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah, as far as the big beefy fire, just like them, you spend your time waiting. Mm-hmm. And, and that positive anticipation, like for the first one is probably good. 
because you're sort of, you know, engaged, you're positively activated, you're ready to go do the work, but then you see what the work is. And now, you know, I don't know for you, since you maybe you didn't know necessarily what this movie and how intense the wildfire situation they're going to be going into for what you saw for when the, the group finally did, you know, end up on a front line in a wildfire in, in California, they were sent to. How closely does that represent sort of a typical, you know, fire, wildland firefighting situation? Um, I would say for your typical wildland firefighters, your guys, because again, here, you know, we don't have the mountains like they do. Right, but right. Those guys out west, yep. I think that's that's an accurate depiction, more than yeah. accurate depiction. Yeah. That, re, that, that realism that no matter how hard you fight sometimes, you will lose the line. Yep. No matter how hard you work to make that fire break, you may lose the line and yeah. you get yourself back to the black and you may have to hustle your butt up out of there. So I think that was, I think that was an extraordinarily accurate depiction. And it's unfortunate for firefighters. A lot of times we find ourselves, um, we fight so hard to hold a line. Yeah. And when we lose it, that feeling of defeat is so strong because you know, you did your absolute best. And when it jumps or those Santa Ana winds come and it, mm -hmm. it's so, you know, there's nothing you can do, but just, yeah, that was very, very accurate depiction. Yeah. And, and you sort of reference this, but the, I don't know what percentage you would give it, but the degree to which the fire itself is, is uncontrollable that you can only do so much to actually fight it. I think, you know, again, from a mental health perspective, you know, when I work with people, you know, non first responders on things like depression and anxiety, trauma, and we have to acknowledge part of it is that you can only control so much of this illness or so much of this uh, situation, so much of this past trauma experience that you went through. Um, and for fighting fire, I mean, it's got to be just as much of acceptance of what you cannot control. And that's got to be, uh, I don't know if that's something that is specifically trained or talked about, but, you know, you're trained to, as you said, hold the line, you know, and as I'm watching this, it's like, right, you don't have water up there in the mountains. So you're, you're basically, you know, you're, you're digging, you're chopping down trees and, and, and clearing bush. And that's what fighting the fire looks like mm -hmm. is, is you're right there in front of it. I almost couldn't believe how on top of the flames that they were to clear the line. And it, it felt I don't know if it felt hopeless watching. Maybe maybe that's just not knowing what the work looks like. But you're watching that, and it's like, yeah, no, that that is what you can do. That's the best you can do in that situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's 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 something that you do. You, you learn to accept. You know, when you first start out, you get those strong feelings of defeat. Oh my gosh, we didn't yeah. do our job. You know, because you feel you feel like you did wrong. You know, and as time goes and as you go on more of those, I think the realization sets in that. You literally, like you said, you said it perfectly, you can only control so much and fire is alive, fire breathes. As long as there's yeah. oxygen, fire's coming, you know, and there's air all around you, there's fuel all around you and just that acceptance of sometimes the beast, she gets loose and you just got to move <laughs> around and try it again. So as someone who's, who's going to be a mental health first aid provider, right, to, you know, how or, or what even could you do for someone who's struggling with that acceptance piece of, you know, I wish I could have done more or why didn't I, you know, um, clear that last piece of brush, whatever it is, that sort of difficulty, you know, whether it's, it's guilt, whether it's, 
um, you know, something bad happening. I mean, the, the, the groups did talk about um, losing a firefighter. You said people die. This is un an unfortunate, sad reality of, of this job. Mm -hmm. um, you know, what, what suggestions, what work do you do with someone to help them with the acceptance piece? You know, the biggest part of that, and there's really no, no strong answer that ever nope. suits every person because everyone thinks differently. And I know you know that better than anybody. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There is no good cookie cutter answer, yep. but the best thing that we're able to do, I think, and it goes to, um, especially, I guess it depends on how long they've been on, on the job because a lot sure. of your new people. Like that's where the, the difficulty is. Exactly. The new guys. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of your new people who... And I want to say you're millennials. I don't say that to pick up oh. millennials either. Um, it's I've noticed that millennials are very in tune, very in tune with their feelings. They feel yep. and they want to talk about their feelings. Yep. And in the fire service, unfortunately, a lot of people don't. Yeah. And so it leaves them kind of in a tough spot. And that's kind of part of where that's part of. We have a lot. We have a lot in the older range too. But we have a lot of our young people who suffer. And so I think I think it kind of comes down to to helping them to understand you have a lot more calls ahead of you and there are a lot more things that are going to go wrong, unfortunately, yep. and how essentially um, you end up just having to learn that you save as many as you can, be it fires, mm. people, whatever. And the ones that you can't, you have to just say that that was an intervention. If you believe in God, that God intervened. If you don't believe in God, then you believe that that is what destiny made it. And you have to just move along because at the end of the yeah. day, Hey, you can only control what you can. The rest, you know. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So in uh, in therapy, there's a there's an approach called uh, DBT, dialectic behavioral therapy. There's a concept called radical acceptance, where it's this idea where no matter how bad or unexpected a situation may be, our ability to move through the sort of resistance or guilt or anger, or frustration, move through that emotional reaction and get to what we would consider like a healing behavior or, or, or progressive behavior moving forward, whether that's going back to work or honestly, in your case, as you're talking about this, like getting help, right? Mm -hmm. That that's what acceptance eventually looks like is I know something bad happened. Um, I'm not happy about it, but it's okay to not be happy about it. But when I get stuck in thinking there's something I could have done to prevent it or, um, you know, something that, you know, I could have activated some, other power within myself or done some other action that would have resulted in, in a different outcome. Once we let go of that, that's then what looks like being able to get back to work. Right. 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 Yeah. And it's, and it's an important skill. And, and I wonder if, if some of the work that you're doing is talking about sort of, because you sort of mentioned that there's this, whether it's spoken or unspoken um, culture, right. For first responders, right? For firefighters, probably in particular, of kind of toughing it out. Right. This is the job. Get back to work. We did see some of that in in Wildland, and I wonder yeah. if, if if that's something that's is it spoken? Is it unspoken? What's the culture like that you've experienced? The culture is one hundred and ten percent. Suck it up and deal with it. Yeah. Everything. Everything. Yeah. Uh, from your emotional trauma to how tired you are. To mm. I will tell you, I'm so guilty of it of the suck it up no matter what that a couple of years ago at one point, um, I was so dehydrated that we left 
after call, went to another call, and I was so exhausted that I fell on my face out of the fire engine, getting out of the back wow. to go to another call because yeah. I had to suck it up in my mind. Because you were pushing through, yeah. Well, and I think a lot of us put the pressure on ourselves, almost that we're robots. You know, your job is to show up four or five men and women, consummate professionals to do their job, don't feel emotion, get it done, and get the heck out. Yeah. And you do that so many times that it becomes almost robotic to a sense that you feel that sense of failure if you don't, and you lose that sense of self, which is horrible, but you know, you're married to it. You, yeah. I think we all have that hero complex where we yep. think, Hey, got to fix it. Yeah. You know, and you're, so, you're kind of trained to do that, that like you're, you walk through all the different things of what you're expected to do in these emergency situations. Yep. And you know, you, you referenced, sort of becoming a robot. And, you know, what I work on with people is that your, your emotions are important. You know, it's not that um, they need to be pushed aside. You need to recognize what your emotions are telling you. Right. So in your, in your position, you're feeling dehydrated. I don't know if that's uh, if you would, would call that fear or anxiety, or if you tapped it, if, if you had to remember any part of that emotional experience, what that would have been called, but something that would have activated some self-preservation as opposed to pushing through and ending up falling on your face yep. out of the truck, right? It, it, the whole, I, I think, I think it just comes down to somewhere between training. And again, it's mm. that culture, it's that belief. It's yeah. that belief that no matter what, I think I would say the only reason why this whole mental health first aid thing even has to exist is because of the Superman complex. Yep. I mean, seriously, no, yeah, yeah. police, uh, us, EMTs, all of us, we almost truly believe that we are low level superheroes and we can do it. And it's not until you're sitting at home. It might be two or three days later. Mm. I know what's happened to my wife. I know what's happened to me. Yep. Two or three days later, all of a sudden it hits you in the side of the head and you're like, man, what about that? Yep. But then of course, Oh, Hey, stuff it down. Don't think about it. Take the plunger, shove it away. Let's keep going. I got a job to do. You know, it's, it's yeah. And is it because of the perception that, if I sit with that feeling or if I sit with that, as you said, thing that I saw, smelled, mm -hmm. watched, right? Mm -hmm. um, that if I sit with that emotion or if I let myself feel that, that that will take me out of being able to do my job? That has been the stigma in yeah. the fire service for a very long time is yeah. that um, almost like you'll get this crazy shell shocked and be catatonic mm -hmm. and no good to anybody yep. if you feel, yep. you know, if you allow yourself to feel. Um, I know that because of that, some places, I know here in Oklahoma, we have not done it, have managed to institute even peer-to-peer -peer counseling because I've noticed yeah, that, um, some of the best ways, it's one thing if some random guy walks into a firehouse and tries to talk to guys, if me loud and rambunctious, and I'm talking about their K-12 saws and this and that, and I know the lingo and yeah. I talk to them, they're better to talk to me. They're going to sit up and listen. And, and that's yeah, a yeah. thing, you know, because you're weak. If you talk, if, there's that belief that if you go see a shrink, you're weak. You know, there's guys that will tell you here in Oklahoma today, you suck it up. If you can't, boy, you ain't no good for it. Mm. It's just that old guard almost. I say it's a generational thing. And I know it sounds unfair to some people. I say, you know, you have your boomers and I'm not picking oh, on sure. the boomers. Yeah. The boomers, this is the Vietnam generation. These are the guys mm -hmm. that came home that, you know, spit on upset, but they had to suck it up. You know, I'm a Gen Xer, so we were taught by those same boomers. Yeah. You gotta be tough. You gotta suck it up. You know, but we were softer on our kids because man, that <laughs> hurt. So we made our millennials. I have a millennial son who I was softer on, and he's exactly what I said earlier. He mm. he wants to talk about it because I didn't do that. You know, and I think it's just it's a generational thing where oh yeah, shift. better 
you know, we're learning we have to talk. We're learning that there is, that we don't have to have a stigma, that we're not crazy, mm-hmm. you know, because we need a little help. It's just making it universal. Yeah, because there is the physical aspect is is very strongly acknowledged. They even say in multiple points, like, do not get hurt, do not get injured, you know, uh, like take care of each other. But and I'm and correct me if I'm wrong, I I don't recall hearing much about, you know, if you are anxious, if Mm -hmm. you are depressed when you get off a shift, if you are this, if you are that being acknowledged as importantly, I mean, you know, look, you can probably work um, if you're feeling a little anxious. You can't work if you break a leg. Like, I, I, I get that. Can I tell you that yeah. <laughs> when I started, and I still have my book from when I first started the fire okay. service, there's nothing in there about it. Not a thing. Sure. Nothing yeah. in there about mental health. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can tell you here in Oklahoma, heck, if you walk up to 90% of our volunteer fire stations, the volunteers spread out all across here. Not one of them, not one of them talks to anybody. They have chaplains mm. that they might think about talking okay, to. Okay, sure. That's but, a good example. You know, yep. There's nothing, you know, because sure. 80% of your chaplains aren't around half the time, you know. Right. It's, it's, a, uh, it's a disturbing fact that, um, you know, it's just, it's help that's needed. It's not there and it's not there because of the mm. stigma, I believe. You know, the yeah. thought that you're crazy. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting because you and I also talked about before starting recording this sort of, you know, is it a difference in people's brains? Is it a different people's personalities that attracts them to this work? Right. Um, Cause I was actually reading um, there is a Dr. Robin Grant Hall who did some, some study on first responders brains. And she actually felt like um and I'm going to read from the article. This is in Fire Rescue Magazine. Um, she said that she believes that first responders essentially have a different kind of brain, as she says, a super strong brain. The unique characteristics that allow individuals to be successful as first responders allow them to be more resilient and their brains become more resilient to trauma. However, eventually the brain essentially overflows like a cup from cumulative stress overload, and this is debilitating to the mental health of first responders. She emphasizes that preventative measures and education are necessary for firefighters to better understand mental health issues and how to approach these situations. So there you go, right? Um, The doctors see what's happening. You know, it's great that the people doing this work have this strength, have this resiliency. You said that whether it's like born different or made differently, there is this sort of thing that it feels like first responders have, but it's also going to lead to this overflow phenomenon that also probably happens for people, whether it's three days later or months later or a year when everything kind of comes to a head. Mm-hmm. And is that something, and, and I know you, you've talked about um, some of your difficult experiences as well. Is that sort of overflow phenomenon something that you feel like you're familiar with? Way more than I'd like to admit. I would mm-hmm. say uh, that's an excellent synopsis right there. And I love that magazine, by the way. Um, but um, yeah, most definitely. I mean, you, uh, you know, there's only so much you can pack in, I mm. think. Um, your cup will definitely overflow. You, when you look at how many calls, I mean, our, I, the first firehouse I was at in a year averaged something around, I want to say something about 500 calls a year, which doesn't wow. sound like that much, but depending on when, you know, on how many calls you actually run on, that's a lot. Yeah, sure. You see, hear, and smell a lot of things between yeah. 500 calls. 
and you learn to cope with things that you've never seen before, you know, things that you didn't even know could possibly happen um, to a person or a child. And yeah. you do, you stack that up. And a guy like me, where I've switched firehouses once, I went to a different mm. town, you know, liked it better, and uh, saw a whole different type of thing, you know. Yeah. All that said, I fully agree with that. And I think that's probably one of the biggest things is once you hit that overflow point, it's the, um, it's the where you go from there. Because right. that is a place where I'm learning just in my infancy of, of, of what I've been doing. Um, sometimes it's hard for people to come back mm-hmm. from there once you get there. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because that's sort of what PTSD sometimes ends up looking like, right? Is that, as you said, we cope. But sometimes the way we cope is that we develop what we might call um, negative associations or negative self-beliefs as a result of our traumatic experiences. So for someone involved in the type of work that you're talking about, you know, it might be easy to arrive at the self-belief of like, it doesn't matter what I do, terrible traumatic things are going to happen whether I do, uh, do something about it or not. And that as a, is a very limiting self-belief because you're taking control away from yourself, right? Yep. Um, yep. And then so and again, in this article, the doctor talks about a specific type of treatment called uh, EMDR, which stands for eye movement, desensitization and reprocessing. And it, it sounds way more complicated and scary than it actually is. Really, what the work is, is sort of using the brain's um, memory association uh, pathways, kind of like what happens when we dream to separate these negative self-beliefs from these traumatic memories. Right. And being able to formulate and identify healthy coping self-beliefs, beliefs about yourself or what you're capable of or, or your environment and attach them to those same memories. And then in, in follow-up memories, follow-up experiences. So that, that as a treatment approach to trauma, I found to be incredibly uh, successful. And I know in programs that have uh, utilized this with first responders has found a lot of success as well. So as you're talking about you know, kind of arriving at that crisis point and developing some of these difficulties, you know, what has helped you to kind of, whether it's acceptance or kind of getting to the other side or getting back to work, obviously you've, you've done enough, enough mental health work with yourself to be able to continue to do this. What do you feel like has helped you to do that? My greatest ally in this has been um, staying busy, getting okay. back to work, like you yep. said, yep. but also, um, I think the best thing that I've found, the thing that keeps me feeling fresh and uh, is talking, talking about it. Um, When I'm with, you know, when I'm with the guys and we've all experienced something, no one can understand it better than them. And if they're in a, you know, and if they're in a position where they want to talk about it, being able to kind of bounce it back and forth, because you always are stuck with, man, did you see that? I wonder if I could have done this, if I could have done mm. that. And when I know I can ask all those questions and get it out there and I can feel it real quick, yep. I don't go to sleep and think, dang, man, and beat myself up because it's out it's there. It's been normalized for you by yes, people who exactly. understand. That's, yep. I was about to say that exact thing. Yeah, yep. is that once it feels normal, I'm good. Yep. I will say that if I go on a bad call and if I don't talk it out, if I don't, then I know I I start to feel like I have some, I have a few issues, you know, so that's kind of been my coping is just staying busy. I keep working and I talk about it. And it's, it's, it's actually been a blessing for all of us. We've noticed that we have a lot of guys who are able to stay in, we stay in, we keep good attitudes, positive Mm. spirits. I know that sounds a little crazy, but 
Not at Once all. Let that negative vibe come into a firehouse, a place yep. where so much negative. Obviously, people call nine one one because they got a problem. You know, sure. they don't call for let's have <laughs> cupcakes and cookies as much as we'd like. You know, right. and when you get that negative vibe started, sometimes man, it's hard to get it out. Mm. It's hard to get it out. Yep. So, kind of keeping that 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 positive atmosphere and keeping guys talking and knowing that it's an acceptable environment for them to feel, you know, Good, I hate yeah. to say the word safe space, but it I has know. to be a safe space. Yeah. It has yeah. to be a place yeah. where I can feel safe. I can share with you and you're not going to judge me. Right. You're not gonna tell me I'm crazy. Judge you know, free zone. Awesome. Yeah. We, yeah. Fucking that old school culture. And it, yeah. it's, it's, it's heaven. It's heaven. Yeah. It sort of reminds me because, you know, now when we have these big large scale crises, whether it's, you know, 9-11, I think of school shootings, I think of uh, natural disasters, there will be calls out for therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, to do this emergency work, come in, you know, uh, be with the community, be available to people who have witnessed or been a part of this traumatic experience. But you guys as firefighters are going through this traumatic experience on a, on a sometimes weekly, if not daily basis, right? But and maybe you're maybe this is sort of what you're talking about, but that sort of like post-traumatic debriefing, which we mm -hmm. do now for school shootings and right. natural disasters, is that something that's that's common, um, or maybe it's just something that happens culturally amongst yourselves? But it feels like something that would be nice to have, like like you said, the chaplain. But it's like yeah. okay, you guys just came back from a really bad you know call, right? Let's process like how are you feeling? What did you see? So. The idea, I will just say that I've been working with Congresswoman Kendra Horn. We actually mm. just spoke yesterday Great. and we've been talking about this because I've been fighting my hardest to normalize exactly what you just said. Um, I am trying to get a CIT trained firefighter, a crisis intervention firefighter in every firehouse because right awesome. now there are literally places where there are horrific calls where there is no debrief. Guys go back, sadly, drop their gear, and they just sit there and look crazy. Right. Um, that is a reality here in Oklahoma, one yeah. that nobody's touched, one that I have experienced in a firehouse when I got there, shocked and immediately was like, okay, we gotta talk. Yep. You know, I'm not, I'm not trained, I'm not licensed, but we're gonna talk. Yep. Good. Um, while that is something that is suggested, um, you're not forced to have it. Right, Believe it or not, you're not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the reality, again, is that's just something, and there's no self-promotion there, nothing. It's just the serious desire, again, to get Congress to see it, to get our state Senate to see it and say, you know what? It doesn't take much funding, nothing. Just to get a little bit of training out, to have it where, because honestly, we have so many guys, there's so many guys that are young, that are alcoholics, that turn to drugs, that their spousal abuse in the home because they don't know how to process it. They go through this, yep. they, there's no debrief and the debrief comes back at the house, you know, with a 20 pack. So yeah. it's just, you know. Yeah. So, so another study that I was looking at that, that sort of emphasizes this is that, so there was a study of 7,000 firefighters and I can, uh, I'll put this in the show notes, but, um, so of those that responded to the survey, 81% said they feared being seen as weak or unfit for duty if they asked for help. Additionally, 71% say they have not used services provided by their department's employee assistance program for mental health issues related to their job. And of those who did use their EAP, 63% did not find it helpful, which I think is kind of speaking to what you're talking about, where the best help is probably going to come from someone who's also doing the work. 
Exactly. That's that's one of the big issues. You know, I I ran into I talked to somebody in our Senate about this and he said, well, there are programs out there. And, and I, I had and to explain are. that exactly. Yeah. You know, was that people like people, the people like people like them, you know, and I said, you're you're talking about firefighters who another firefighter is who they want to talk to. And I said, or I said, a retired firefighter, sure. you know, something like that. I said, that's what they hunger for. And instead, when we ram down people's throats, well, this gentleman here in a suit is going to come in and he's going to talk to you, but he has no idea what you do, but he has a degree and he can help you. Not that his degree isn't worth something, <laughs> but he doesn't share your experience. And that's he, right. You know, if you say to him, this person was just crushed by this car and I literally scooped them up yeah. into this bag, he may say, whoa, that's heavy. I've never seen that. <laughs> And then, it's just, and then you're shut off after that. It's like, right, okay, well, exactly. then you don't get it. Yeah. Exactly. You've shut down. So. Yeah. And as the, as the person who's been in that suit, um, yeah. you know, even in the situations where you are working with people um, like first responders, I always emphasize, I do not pretend to know what you have been through or claim to have any insight into your experiences. But, and this is, and I'm only saying this to, if I'm speaking to first responders who this is the only sort of program that they have access to. It's that you're the expert on your experience, right? And the, the therapist or the counselor's job is to help you make the connections that you already have access to, um, to make the growth that you're capable of. The, the therapist or the counselor is only there to help you do the work that, as we're kind of talking about, is not normalized within your culture. But it doesn't you mean that you can't do it. I'm sorry. If I can say, I hope your voice right there breaks down someone's wall. I hope somebody literally hears what you just said. And that tears down that, that wall that stands between the work that you do and the work that we do, because yeah. honest to God, until we can bridge that gap, yeah. I think there'll always be this messed up murky disambiguation between he's over there. He can't help me. And you may have some insight that would be outstanding for me. But if I am stuck on that mighty horse of you don't right. get me, we're never going to be able to come together. So I hope someone heard that and they get it. I truly do. Right. So I, I, I and I, I don't get, I don't know what fires look like. I don't know what happens. I don't know what people have seen, but I do know what happens in the brain. I do know what unconscious and subconscious associations happen when we experience trauma. And if I can help you, plant and develop other associations so that you can get back to work. You don't have to talk to the guy in the suit anymore. Nothing would make me happier. We, we want you to see us less too. <laughs> right. That's awesome. I, I, I really appreciate you saying it. Like truly, like I say, I hope somebody hears that. And I hope that helps them just in the sense of, like I say, I truly believe there are so many people that are out there that are suffering. I personally know so many firefighters, but they're so afraid, yeah. you know, but hearing something like that is almost that, well, maybe it's okay. And I hope yeah. I really do because man, oh man, I mean the suicide rate, there's no reason, you know, there's no, there's just no reason. Yeah. Well, well you said it. And again, from this, um, from this uh, survey that was taken um, among the 7,000 firefighters, 19% um, have had thoughts of suicide. 27% have struggled with substance abuse. 59% have experienced family and relationship problems. And 65% are haunted by memories of bad calls. I mean, I can't imagine that these percentages um, are much worse in any other profession. You know, this has got to be at the top of the top of the list in terms of, you know, stressful jobs, right? And, and yet the, the culture is still, this is normal. These mm -hmm. experiences, whether it's, you know, suicidal thoughts or, 
smoking, drinking, doing drugs, or yep, family problems because you're going out on a, a three-week, you know, situation in the wildland. Yeah, that's the job. And it's like, wow, okay. Am I okay? Is it okay if I'm angry or scared or worried about that? So so hopefully what we're what we're coming across with is that it's okay. And this is this is really messages to anybody because I work with plenty of people who have non-first responder jobs, but because of their trauma, it's the same thing of like, well, I'm just supposed to go back to work. Like, I'm, I'm, this is what's normal. And it's like, well, we have to separate out what your expectation is of normal and the crazy things that you've experienced because right. that, that's not uh, in alignment. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's incredible work that you do and that all first responders do. And I, I appreciate you coming in on the show and sharing some of your insight into that. You know, the, the end of the documentary itself pretty happy ending. I think I was anticipating like, okay, man, which one's going to die or which something, something really bad's going to happen. Um, and you know, they, they get this first intense experience on the, the front lines of this wildfire in California and they do a good job. You know, they, they do their job, they protect each other. Um, you can see that it's obviously hard work. They're literally in there breathing the smoke. Um, but they all come home and they, they come home and they kiss their loved ones. And then you kind of know, like, okay, now this is what's real. Like, this is going to be something that's going to have to become normal for them. I think, I think them ending it with the father and the son as yeah. well. Oh, yes. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Going forward, um, that, that was truly symbolic for me in the sense yeah. that the dad, I felt like watching him, I thought he was going to wash out because he's older and he yep. was tired and he was hot, but he wanted that. You know, I think he had something to prove. And then to see his son, um, coming through the same program, yep. um, there is something truly special. No matter how a tradition starts, even if it starts hinky and weird like that, with, you know, <laughs> his, with the dad struggles and the son had some struggles, but if they start a tradition in their family of service to their community and to others, and that's how it starts, man, that's something beautiful. That, was, that was such a powerful ending for me to see. Just I was like, wow, we, we saw them progress. We saw everybody serve survive and we saw the start of a legacy so i'm like chapter two is out there and i guess we won't see it but the boy's writing it so there you go well said well i, I couldn't uh hope to end on a better note than that so we all we're all going to go forward and and write our next legacy right whether it's self-care you know caring for another like yourself getting certified uh later this month congratulations and and i'm i'm grateful for people like you who recognize the need and take the action um so, Sean, again, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can I can I plug anything of yours? Can people find you on social media? Anything else um, you want people to know? I can tell you, Sean, S-H-A-U-N-P-R-Y-O-R on Facebook. Um, other than that, you might see me. If you look that up, you'll probably find the anti-smoking ads. Um, I was going to say, I was, I was gonna definitely going to recommend people take a look at your uh, anti-smoking ad. We didn't get the chance to talk about too much about smoking today. If I can um, say one thing about no, that. No, please, absolutely. Back, real quick. Yeah. Um, if there's anybody within sound of my voice that is a smoker or a vapor, and if you decide that you want to quit, if you've made up your mind that that's what you want, um, there's a program, it's called T-Set. And the best thing I would say for you to do is just hop on Google and look up Tobacco Stops With Me. You're going to see a website. It's going to be plastered with me and my kid's face, right? But I'm not plugging us on that. We give away free lozenges, free patches, mm. free nicotine gum. It's no charge. Order it. You know, hop on there, order it. And you can, uh, I mean, that stuff's expensive. It gets you started to quit. So please use the free resources. Again, the stuff's free. 
free. They love to send it out. You know, um, it's good for you. So that's all I got. Fantastic. I appreciate the message. And um, uh, we'll put some some links to that in the show notes as well. So Sean Pryor, thanks so much for coming on the show today. And hopefully we'll have you back and we'll talk more about smoking and addiction and some of that stuff as well. For sure. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.